Apparently, this is one of the hottest summers on record in America. And we're living in Russia or something. I'm not sure. I don't know. Can we do a quick poll? Who would rather have scorching heat and humidity for just maybe a week than, than the clouds? I got a couple of takers. Not too many of you. I guess that's why we all live in Portland. Well, welcome to In Town. We're glad that you're here with us. Um, we're continuing our study in Luke's Gospel, and this is a study that we've been going through for quite a while, and we're actually going to continue through Luke for the rest of the year. So, uh, you know, hang on to your hats, and if you ever want to read ahead, you'll know where we are, and we're just going to kind of keep plodding our way along. Um, typically, every Monday morning, I, I get up and I check our, we have an online document that's our liturgy schedule, and I see what Brian has assigned for me that week. And uh, this is one of those weeks where being the assistant is just loud and clear. He's on vacation, okay? And remember, last week he took the prodigal son story, which in, in the sermon world is kind of a, a home run hitter. You can't really mess that one up. And he left me with the shrewd manager or the dishonest manager. And at first I was like, great, I've never really understood that parable. This is going to be so much fun to study. And then every commentary I read, they said, I've never really understood this parable. And I still don't. So we're going to get through this together. And you're going to see in a moment why this is such a difficult story to understand. Um, but we're going to focus on the parts that we can understand. And even those parts are going to be rather offensive. I don't know if you remember a few weeks back, I said that as Jesus keeps moving closer to death, he keeps talking about a lot of really weird, offensive stuff, and money comes up over and over again. Well, guess what? Money is coming up again this morning. This morning, we're looking at the parable of the manager. Some call him shrewd. Others call him dishonest. Some see him as a hero. Others as a villain. But as I said, rather than tear through each difficulty of this passage, which really would keep us here all day, I'd like us to pull back a little bit and remember what Luke has been doing as he's been writing for us the ministry of Jesus and where Jesus is headed. And then we're going to piece together some of the things that Jesus is saying and, and try and make sense of what's happening. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading from Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth 
to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much so if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property who will give you property of your own no one can serve two masters either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money the pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at jesus he said to them you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but god knows your hearts what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are an enigma to us. For all of our trying and all of our efforts to codify you, to break you down into digestible bits, you remain a mystery. Your power is elusive and greater than our imagination. And this morning as we are faced with a text that uh, is very difficult to understand, I ask that you would make one thing clear this morning, that we are people desperately in need of your mercy. And that our need has been met in the death of your Son, I ask that we would be brought closer to you this morning by that reality. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to begin this morning by pulling back a little bit and looking at the context of this story. Remind ourselves what Luke has been up to and how he's been piecing together the story of Jesus' life and ministry with specific purposes in mind. And so once we've done that, we're then going to look at this text through two lenses. Two perspectives that Jesus is asking us to consider. The way of the world and the weirdness of the kingdom. So by way of reminder, our story takes place on the road to Jerusalem. It's a journey that Jesus has been making for several chapters now as we've been looking at Luke's gospel. And though we haven't touched on it much, Luke uses the motif of journey and destination as, as a way of um, sort of factoring into his development of certain themes throughout his gospel and then in his sequel, the book of Acts. And in the gospel, what, what Luke does is he shows us the ministry of Jesus as he basically draws this spiral as Jesus goes around Israel ministering in various villages and it gets tighter and tighter until it eventually lands on Jerusalem. It lands on the death of Jesus. And then in Acts, Luke begins at that center point and begins to show the ministry of the apostles spiraling outward from Jerusalem through Israel, through the surrounding area, and eventually taking the gospel message to the entire world. And we're going to come back to this idea in a moment, but it's important for us to remember that Jerusalem and what happens to Jesus in Jerusalem are at the very center of how Luke understands the Christian story. So as Luke keeps narrowing our field of vision on Jerusalem, Jesus' own message is starting to focus 
It's starting to take sort of a laser-like precision. It's starting to get not quite as nice as it was. And he keeps stirring up hornet's nests everywhere he steps. And the wrath of the religious leaders is building higher and higher and stronger against him. The religious leaders are angry with him because he keeps telling these stories. And as difficult as they may be for us to understand, thousands of miles away and thousands of years later, the religious leaders got that he was attacking them, that his stories were rather mean. As Brian pointed out a few weeks ago, Jesus keeps getting invited to these dinner parties and then engaging in wildly inappropriate conversation. He tells hosts that they're being bad hosts. He tells them that true people, true, true kingdom people throwing parties are going to invite people that shouldn't be there to begin with. And he offends everyone. So even when we don't completely understand the stories that Jesus is telling, we can watch the reactions of the religious community around him. And we can rest assured that they understood him perfectly. They understood him well enough to kill him. Last week we saw Jesus telling stories about lostness. And it ended with the tale of the prodigal son. Before that we heard about a guy who was throwing a party and everyone he initially invites can't make it. So he tells his servants to go out into the streets and the gutters and bring in all of the wrong people. All the unworthy people that had no business being at a fancy party. And Luke is building up for us what he's going to make clear in his sequel. But Israel's establishment, especially the religious established leadership, is in the process of rejecting Jesus. They are unable to move away from their own sense of justification. They think they understand how God works, how his kingdom is going to come, and so they reject Jesus. And what Jesus is telling us through his stories, and what Luke is trying to get us to understand, that he will make very clear in the book of Acts, is that the, the people that the leaders think the least of, the sinners, the foreigners, and the failures, those are the people that are going to enter into this new community. Those are the people that are going to get the kingdom. We'll return to that in a moment. But it's immediately following this story of the prodigal that Jesus begins telling us this story of a prodigal manager. And Luke is tipping us off that these stories are related because he uses the same word of wastefulness to describe the manager as he did to describe prodigal son. And sure enough, the Pharisees are angry at the end of the story. But if we were to continue reading in Luke chapter 16, we'd see that Jesus just keeps on talking. And he tells another story that is very familiar to many of us, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. All of these stories are interrelated. And on the surface, they're all dealing with things of value, with wealth, with money. But below the surface, they are dealing with people who get the kingdom and people who don't. They're dealing with people who fall into the ways of the world and people who stand out as weirdos. First, we're going to look at the way of the world. Now, as I hinted, at, hinted to you earlier, there has been much ink spilt in attempts to figure out whether Jesus is, is actually commending this manager for doing something dishonest. And there are all sorts of uh, shadows and nuances in the language throughout the story that, that perhaps someday, if you're really interested in that sort of thing, you know, we can go hang out and it'll take us months and months to get this whole thing figured out. So we're not going to tackle all of the, the reasons and the wherewithals as to why 
Jesus is not actually condoning dishonesty, okay? But just get to the bottom line. He's not saying, go out and be dishonest and rip people off. This is a good thing to do, okay? That's not what he's saying. And I think what we need to realize is that it's very important for us to get distracted from, from the thing that Jesus is trying to put his finger on, the thing that is very much a pressure point for us, we're trying to slap that away and just kind of think about the things that are difficult to understand. No, what we're going to focus in on is the things that we can understand and we just don't like. So here's what's happening. Jesus is telling a story about the way of the world. The story about this manager that comes in and finds himself suddenly without a job is a story about how the world works. And in a minute, we'll see that there is an implied critique that Jesus is giving of the world system. But given the context that we've just looked at, I think it's safe to say that Jesus is not attempting to hold a class on business ethics by telling this story. And of course, of course, our understandings of the gospel, as we allow the gospel to sink into our lives, as we allow our understanding of the kingdom that is embodied in Jesus to sink into our lives, of course, that's going to affect the way we do business. It's going to affect how we work in our jobs, how we have financial dealings with other people. But to suggest that that is the scope of this parable is to have missed a much broader, much more important point. Rather, what Jesus is doing is he's telling us a story about how the world works, something we all know to be true about the way of the world, and he's using that as a way to get us to consider the weirdness of his kingdom. And we actually have stories with sort of morally ambiguous heroes all over in our culture. I mean, there's all sorts of movies and, and popular literature out there about the good guy who hates his boss and gets fired but doesn't really get a good peer review. And so what does he do? He, he figures out a way to rip off the company, right? And he gets all this money and he goes and lives south of the border somewhere. Okay? Or perhaps you're familiar with this story. There's a ragtag group of con men who are going to con the big bad casino owner out of all of the millions that he's been stealing from everyone else. Okay, so we have an idea in our culture of, of someone who's sort of a hero, but they're doing things dishonestly, but, but we get that they're using the world and the way that the world works to make a gain for themselves. Within Jesus' own culture, there are a few different ways that we could perhaps understand the actions of this shrewd manager. And perhaps they would help us understand, why does his master commend him for stealing from him. I mean, that's, that's pretty strange, right? So it could be that, that as the manager comes and he cuts down the bills of the debtors, it could be that he's cutting out his own commission. And it could be that he had inflated his commission and he's just kind of balancing the books back, but he's doing it in a way so that the debtors feel like he's their buddy, but he's also getting some money for his master. He's kind of doing a win-win. It could also be that he's actually removing an unlawful interest tax. Perhaps his master has has been charging interest on these debtors, which is against uh, the, uh, the Mosaic law. So it could be that he's removing that, and so now he's getting the manager or the master back in good standing with the community. Whatever the cultural surroundings of the story that, that probably made more sense to Jesus' audience than it does to us, what we can say is that the manager has acted swiftly and shrewdly to set up a good life for himself. And I think that that is the extent of the point that Jesus is making. The world has a certain way of working, and pretty much all of us understand how we can plug into it and use it for our benefit. 
we might not all achieve the same amount of worldly success in exactly the same ways, but we all have a pretty good grasp of how to play the game. This is especially clear in a, in a presidential election year, right? I mean, what are the three things that you need to be president? Friends with money, good teeth, and a decent hairline, okay? I think most of us have been cut out for one of those reasons. Some of us have different ones than others, but that's pretty much all you need. You gotta play by the rules. You gotta kiss babies, have friends with deep pockets. But even if we're not running for president, our lives are really not that different. If you want a better job, well, it's often not what you know, it's who you know. So rub shoulders with influential people. Become friends with culture makers and people in charge of hiring big companies. Network, work the room and shake hands. You wanna have a good retirement? Invest wisely, build up a nest egg. If you wanna get ahead in life, you need to leverage and maximize your good qualities, whether it's your looks, your personality, your skills, your talents, and then you wanna minimize the, the, the bad things about you, the things that aren't gonna set you up for a good life, because this is how the world works. It recognizes well-written resumes, respectable CVs, and good first impressions. The world rewards hard work. It rewards ingenuity and quick thinking. And the world is a connected web of relationships that form themselves into tribes. So your definition of success and how you're going to get there is going to change according to the tribe that you identify with. So let's face it, I think many of us that are Portland types here can probably see gaping holes in the life goals of, of Wall Street execs. You know? and, and I'm not talking about just the regular guys that are, that are getting by. I'm talking about the guys that have solid gold toilets and a, and a Coke habit the size of our mortgage, okay? None of us here in Portland are really into that sort of lifestyle. We think that we've got things figured out. I doubt that very many of us here are interested in becoming the CEO of Walmart. Most Portland people re uh, refuse to shop there altogether, right? So we're smarter than that, right? We live in Portland. We know that life is, is about more than money. No, all that we need to be happy is to just run a small, local, artisanal, sustainable clean company. Okay? If I can do my artwork on the side and then make enough for my 100% post-consumer cork shoes, I'm going to be, I'm satisfied, okay? I just need enough money to support my theater troupe while I'm working on my bikes-only local organic produce moving company. And then, you know, maybe I just need a, a postgraduate degree, maybe something in the medical field or probably English literature. That's all I need. You see how we all build different definitions of success, and yet we all have the same basic understanding of how to get there? We know the right people, you gotta work at it, persevere, maybe invest some money, and then just have a dash of positive thinking. We have been learning how to get along in this world since our first day of preschool. You play well with others, color inside the lines, but think outside the box. And then what's the adult version of that? build a social media network, and attend conferences. I mean, this is how you're going to get where you want to go. People in this world are shrewd when dealing with other people. They understand the rules of the game, and they play to their advantage, and that's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. But here's the clincher. Jesus isn't just telling us something we already know about the way of the world. Rather, he's using this obvious understanding 
as a way of alerting us to the weirdness of his kingdom. because there are people that are just kind of committed to this world system. they're born into it and they can start to get it and understand how to work it. if they can figure out how that works, shouldn't people that have been committed to the kingdom of god figure out how the kingdom works? and that's when jesus says something really really strange he says use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings what? could just be me but it sounds as if jesus is saying that the gatekeepers of heaven are taking bribes does it, does it sound like that? i mean is he just suggesting that, that we need to play the long game instead of going for the short con? because if that's the case I think I have the best job here, because all I have to do is convince you all that I know the gatekeeper, so give me your money, I'll make sure that you get in, right? This is, this is one of the reasons, one of several, why this passage is so difficult to understand, because it honestly sounds like Jesus is saying, slip the mater d of 20 in heaven, and you'll make sure to get a table. But if we think about what's been happening in Luke's storytelling, and if we remember what we've been told about the kingdom so far, I think what we're going to see is that Jesus is pulling back the curtain for us to see inside the kingdom and to recall what's at the center. See, according to Luke, the kingdom is a place where lost things are sought out. It's a place where stupid sheep and rebellious, money-wasting, prostitute-hiring sons are welcomed back. The kingdom is a party with all the wrong people. There are no dignitaries, no delegates, no Olympians, no CEOs present in this party room. Rather, the room is filled with drunks and whores and heroin addicts. The tuxedos are made of sheets from the Daily News. The high heels are made of duct tape and cardboard. It is a room filled with disgraced, used-up politicians, ex-Ponzi schemers, criminals, convicts, and losers from all corners of the earth. So when you knock on the door to the party of the kingdom, you are going to be greeted by Jesus and all of his weirdos. So when Jesus tells us to make use of our worldly resources, to make friends with people who will welcome us into eternal dwellings, these are the friends he's talking about. Give to the people that have absolutely no influence. Network with people that cannot get you higher in your job whatsoever. They have no ability to help you climb the ladder to worldly success. Make friends with these people, and the doors to the kingdom party will be opened. Now, some of you are starting to say, okay, Steve, look, this is a really tough parable to understand, obviously. And you're pretty young, so you might not have heard of this before, but what you just said is basically the social gospel. Love everybody, help the poor, and if you do enough good stuff, you get into heaven. I actually had this conversation with myself as I was writing this. And if you're like me and you're having this conversation in your head, let me just state for the record, the social gospel is a cakewalk compared to what Jesus and Luke are calling us to. And just to be clear, what I'm not saying, and what Jesus is not saying, is that heaven is the new success. And you just have to figure out the rules of this new game, and if you obey them and you succeed enough, you're going to get there. You just have to play hard. No, it's not nearly so easy as learning the rules to a new game. Because the gospel 
is free but it requires death as i said luke has been pulling jesus throughout this entire extended narrative toward jerusalem he's pulling him toward the center of the kingdom a center from which the church spills back outward into the world and what is at the center death what jesus is trying to get us to see is that the rules in his kingdom are to die 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 to your rule following and your rule breaking die to your own moral effort die to selfishness die to the way of the world that says you can create success for yourself and the reason that the pharisees are so mad at jesus is because he's calling them and he's calling us to give up what we think makes us successful what we think makes us special and accepted and what he's telling us is that the use of our money is a mirror of the deep commitments of our hearts what he's really trying to get at when he says when he has that little discussion at the end about being faithful and little and being faithful and much he's telling us is that dying to your money is the war games of the christian life this is where you practice out how to live the christian life money is chump change it's child's play it's training wheels and if you cannot figure out how to meet death with your money how will you ever figure it out with your morality how will you ever be able to die to your own moral efforts you see that jesus is not condemning or condoning the shrewd manager for figuring out how the world works no he is asking us to wake up to realize that the kingdom is coming on violently to recognize that at the center of everything that the church is everything the church or the kingdom embodies is death if you can't imagine throwing your money away on a losing cause how could you ever throw your life away to the center of that kingdom but that is exactly what god himself does for you and i he dives down into death and darkness he does it for stubborn unbending losers this is the weirdness of the kingdom it's entering into death to find life it's giving up in order to receive it's diving down to be lifted up and as jesus made it abundantly clear friends you cannot serve two masters you can continue on in the way of the world scrapping and clawing your way to the top mustering as much self-will as you possibly can to try and give life to yourself and what will you have gained a 20-year retirement with a title to a motorhome and some health insurance but life itself will have escaped you the very thing that you have been chasing will have eluded you and when we get to the end we will be shown to be like children clenching our fists unwilling to give up what we think is everything and when our hands are finally pried open we realize there was nothing there to begin with but if we would simply enter into the death of jesus the death that is at the center of his kingdom when we finally let our grip go slack we will find our hands that will be filled with life and life and the fullness of life let's pray together
Jesus, your death is what brings us life. But it is also a call for us to come and die. We cannot get to the life that you offer if we cling to our own morality, if we cling to our own self-justification. I ask that as we come now uh, to your table to continue singing praises to you and worshiping you, that this would be a moment of death for us, that we would come and die to all else but you, and in doing so that we would find life, and so much more life than we could have imagined. We ask this in your name. Amen.